1752, at the age of 17, a man named Robert Robinson gathered a group of friends to go hear a, a famous evangelist named George Whitfield preach near Robinson's hometown in England. Now, Robinson and his friends were known troublemakers. They were essentially like a gang, a 1752 England gang, whatever that looks like. And so they weren't going to hear Whitfield preach because they were interested in spiritual things. No, their, their plan was, let's go heckle this preacher, which was pretty common. So they were going to go ridicule him, potentially throw things at him while he preached. That was their plan. But God had other plans, at least for Robinson. And so as they're there listening to this preaching, Robert Robinson was so affected by what he heard, the Christian message of the gospel, that he didn't immediately become a Christian, but he experienced three years of an awareness of his sin and burden and misery. And then three years later, he is converted. He becomes a Christian at the age of 20, and he immediately sets out to become a pastor and immediately starts writing hymns for the church. And his most famous hymn, which he wrote at the age of 22, you may have heard, uh, is a, a song called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it's a, it's a real unique song because on the one hand, it celebrates God as the, the fountain, the source of all blessing. But on the other hand, it also reminds the singer, and it's autobiographical for Robinson, that we can quickly forget God and we can wander from Him. So if you haven't heard the song, the first verse begins, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Those are the lyrics, we'll sing it later. But listen to this prayer at the end of verse 3, celebrating God as the fountain of joy. But then he says, prone to wander, Lord I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. That's his prayer. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And Robinson, as he wrote this hymn, was honest with his walk with God. He loved God. He wanted to live for him. But there were times when his heart desired to be wayward, when he would drift. And this verse proved to be a bit prophetic in a sad way for Robinson. As years went on, he actually wandered from Christianity. He, he denied the truth of who Jesus was. And later in life, when he had wandered from God, one story tells us that he was, uh, he was in a, a stagecoach traveling somewhere. And this hymn, which was profoundly popular, was being hummed. The tune was being hummed by a lady next to him. And she asked Robinson, she said, how? Have you heard this song before? What do you think of this tune? And he responded by saying, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. See, I wonder if you can relate to Robert Robinson. If you can relate to that verse. Do you ever feel like you're prone to wander from God? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel not just prone to drift, but you, you feel so distant from God, you wonder if he's even there, right? And one of the reasons I think this song has just endured through, throughout the church for 250, 260 years is because every one of us can relate to the experience of those three words. Prone to wander, right? 
And this morning, as we look at chapter 1 of Jonah, we're looking at a man who once knew the joy of God. He once knew the fountain of every blessing, but then he wandered away. That's Jonah. As we start this trek through Jonah, we're going to see the danger of wandering from God, but what we also see from the very beginning, the pursuit of God's grace for such sinners. And as we reminded ourselves last week, as we were reading through Jonah, read through the entire book, this book is meant to hold up a mirror to us for us to see that we too are Jonah. We are prone to wander. Or as we repeated last week in our liturgy, we run from God, but God relentlessly pursues us by His grace. And so what we did last week is Clint uh, did sort of a flyover. If you, if you uh, get in a plane at Boston Logan and you, you, know, you convince the pilot to fly low enough to LAX to point out kind of, you know, here's this mountain range, here's this great city, you've kind of seen America, right? But you haven't really seen America. If you want to really experience America... You've got to get in a car, and you've got to take a slow, long road trip across the country, right? So that's what we're doing now. We, we had a, a, a sort of high view last week, and now we're getting down, and we're getting in the car, and we're driving through the details of chapter 1. And as we walk through this chapter, we're going to do it in three simple parts. First, we see the command of God, then we see the rebellion of man, and then we see the pursuit of grace, the command of God, the rebellion of man, and the pursuit of grace. So the first thing we see as we begin in Jonah chapter 1 is the command of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. See, Jonah was a prophet. His responsibility was to receive the word from God and then explain it, tell it. He was a messenger. And here God gives him really a very simple and clear command. He says, go to Nineveh and call out against it. But notice a few things about this command. First, it's a command to go somewhere. Right? Now, this is unique. You might say, well, that's not that big of a deal. But this is unique because most prophets in Israel were told all the time to speak out against wicked nations. But they would do it from the inside of their country. They would do it from inside of Israel. They were never really told to go to a foreign nation and proclaim this message. But for some reason, God tells Jonah that he's going, he should travel to this city and call out against it. It's a command to go somewhere. It's also a command of judgment. That's what that phrase, call out against it, means. Jonah is to proclaim God's coming judgment on this wicked city of Nineveh. Why? Because... The people of Nineveh, Nineveh have abandoned God. Now, we, we went over this last week, and Clint gave some just great details about the wickedness of these people. But just by way of reminder, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. These were the known enemies of God. On the edge of Mosul, what we wouldn't know today, uh, Iraq, 40 miles east of Syria. They were known for this military brutality. They had no regard for human life. They rejected the worship of the one true God. So they were, they were enemies of God and his people. And so their disdain for God and human life meant that God is sending judgment to them. This is warranted judgment. So he takes this prophet and he says, you're going to go and you're going to tell them of this coming judgment. But notice already, we're just in verse 2, but notice already this theme that's all throughout the book of Jonah. 
in this command, there's also grace, isn't there? God could have just decided right then and there, listen, Nineveh is done for. They're they're worthy of just judgment. But instead, in His grace, He decides to send someone to warn them of the coming judgment. That they might repent. So this is not just a command of judgment. This is also a command of grace. He doesn't wipe them out. He tarries. He's patient. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he desires to give this wicked city a chance to repent. You see, some, some people paint the picture of God as a sort of uh, hothead. He's got an anger problem. He's got a short fuse, a bad temper. He's like a, a two-year-old right? when he gets mad. He's always angry and wrathful for no purpose. And understandably, you wouldn't want a relationship with that God, would you? Right? If you had a friend who always pointed out your faults, always yelled at you, always lost their temper with you, eventually that relationship would erode. That would be unhealthy, be unsustainable. But others uh, portray God as really the complete opposite. He's just this really nice, laid-back guy. He's never going to get mad at you. He's always going to encourage you. He's always smiling, never tells you when you're doing something wrong. You wouldn't want a relationship with that God either, right? Because if someone knows you have faults but never points them out, they're not really helping you, are they? They don't really care for you. You see, this command for Jonah to judge, to go and speak judgment against Nineveh, it actually gives us the whole picture of God. God is holy, therefore Nineveh is guilty before God, yet he's also gracious, so he's going to warn them. God is just. Nineveh deserves judgment, but he's also merciful, so they're going to have an opportunity to turn. This command, the entire book, and all of the Bible puts God forward in that way. He is both just and merciful. This is a command of judgment, but it's also a command of grace. And if you put all this together, you put yourself in Jonah's shoes, you can see that this is a difficult command, isn't it? This would be a a long journey. This is a a difficult message to a dangerous people. Jonah wouldn't be going with armies in front of him. He'd be going alone, as he later does. And and as we make these observations, it's it's important for us because we're not going to justify Jonah's disobedience that we'll get to in a second, but we need to truly grasp how serious what God is asking him to do is. And if we're to see ourselves in the person of Jonah, then this command forces us to look inward and ask the question, am I willing to follow God wherever He tells me to go? Am I willing to love whoever He tells me to love? Am I willing to obey Him in whatever He commands me in His Word? You see, it's one thing to obey God when it's easy, right? But the real test of faith for Jonah and for us comes when obedience requires sacrifice. And that's exactly what Jonah is facing here. Now, we know he's capable of obedience. We know he's obeyed this prophetic word before. He's prophesied before. But the difference is, the last prophecy we know of in 2 Kings 14 was a, a good news prophecy. It was about God's people experiencing prosperity. It was about the borders of Israel expanding under King Jeroboam. In fact, Jonah prophesying back in 2 Kings would have directly benefited Jonah. He would have been in with the king. He would have been in the king's courts. There may even have been some financial benefit 
to him. It was good news. But now, now Jonah's life is at risk. Now Jonah's reputation is at risk. And so he wonders, I don't know about this. Jonah was obedient when it was easy, but disobedient when it was difficult. We have to ask ourselves, what about us? What has God commanded you to do that gives you pause because of the sacrifice it requires? If you want to know what God demands, Jesus sums it up very well for us in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. That's it. Two things. Love God and love others. Everything's summed up in that, right? Not too hard. But when you start thinking about what that actually means, it requires sacrifice, doesn't it? It requires sacrifice to love God. You have to sacrifice your own desires to pursue Him. You may have to sacrifice your reputation in obedience to Christ. Are you willing to be seen as foolish by the eyes of the world as you seek to live for Jesus? Or as a story I read this week, are you willing to sacrifice some of the most valuable relationships in your life? I read of one young man who converted from Islam to Christianity and his father, whom he loved dearly, instantly disowned him and kicked him out of the family. Requires sacrifice to love God. Requires sacrifice to love others as well. Sacrifice of your time, of your resources, of your energy, especially toward difficult people, right? The sacrifice of relationship or reputation to bring the gospel message to someone who may oppose you, as Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 28. Obedience to God's command requires sacrifice. The German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer models this for us well. He actually moved to the U.S. to to go to seminary in the rise of Adolf Hitler, but God was calling him to go back. He wanted to go back and stand against this rising Nazi regime, so he goes back. He founds an illegal seminary. He even becomes a double agent, which I think is really cool, right, in this plot to overthrow Adolf Hitler. And it's found out he is imprisoned and eventually hanged just days before liberation for what God has called him to do. He wrote this in a wonderful book called The Cost of Discipleship. He famously says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the the sacrifice that's required to follow him. We die to ourselves in submission to him. The question for us here is, will we obey his commands even when they're difficult? Jonah didn't do this. And that leads us to number two we see the rebellion of man. So look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So what does Jonah do? He does the complete opposite of what God tells him to do. Instead of Nineveh, he goes east to Tarshish, southern Spain. And this was the end of the known world to the Jews at the time. So he's thinking, how far can I go? I want to go there. I don't care where it is. And he gets in a boat, 
And he goes down there. And just to show you how determined Jonah is, the text tells us that he paid the fare. This would have been a costly trip. This would have cost a lot of money. And this would have been expensive for a prophet. Not exactly raking in the dough, right? It would have been 3,000 nautical miles to get from Joppa to Tarshish. It would have taken at the very least a month. But he pays the fare and he goes. And we're meant to see that the geographical travel plans of Jonah here are reflective of the rebellious desires of his heart. And his rebellion is twofold. What is he, what is he rebelling against here? Well, first he's rebelling against God's word. Right? Verse 1 is very clear. This wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't something he wondered, should I do this? God's word came to Jonah. But this word's met with deliberate and intentional disobedience. And this is actually devastating to, to read because though we don't know much about the background of Jonah, we do know that there was a time when he must have enjoyed the sweet presence of knowing and following and obeying God. right? But now he's trying to flee from him. He's wandered, and his, his wandering really teaches us an important lesson. You, you can't live today on yesterday's graces, right? I, I imagine Jonah saying, well, God, I, I prophesied once before. Like, I was obedient, and it went well. I have a pretty good track record. I've got a good spiritual history. Is it really that big of a deal if, if I disobey just like this one time? And while we, again, we don't know much about this, what I would venture to guess is that this, this drift didn't happen to Jonah overnight. I'd venture to guess that he wasn't worshiping God one day in the full joy of his presence, and then the next moment decides, you know what, I'm going to completely disobey and go the opposite direction. I think this was likely a slow drift. And the reason I think that is because that's how it happens in my own life. It was likely gradual and subtle distancing of himself from God. A few years ago, we were at the beach as a family, and we had set up our area on the shore. And Lauren was on the shore with some of the younger kids, and I was in the water uh, playing with some of the older kids. And 30, maybe even 45 minutes go by. I hadn't looked up on shore, and we're playing. And, and I look up straight on the shore, and I think, where's my wife and kids? Where's our station that we set up for the day? And I thought, man, they're, they're gone. They packed up for some reason. Uh, wh- where are they? And I'm, I'm looking around. And then finally, I look all the way to my left, and I see hundreds of feet away the station where we were. See, what happened? We were just enjoying playing in the water, but this slow undertow had some, slowly pulled us away from our starting point. That's the same thing that happens in our spiritual lives when we take our eyes off Christ and we begin neglecting His Word as nourishment for our souls. We slowly drift away from life in community with people. And eventually, if unchecked, we find ourselves questioning the very goodness of God's command, which is what Jonah was doing here. And we'll see later that Jonah, we don't want to jump ahead, but Jonah thinks that God's command and the potential grace that God will show this wicked city is not right. He hates it. So he's drifting away. But this wasn't just a rebellion against God's word. It was also a rebellion against God's presence. The text tells us three times about Jonah's downward descent. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down again in verse 5 to the inner parts of the ship. 
This is, this is telling us, it's signifying Jonah's slow distancing and downward spiral from a once vibrant relationship with God. You see, any rebellion against God is foolish. But what's so interesting about this story is we're meant to see just how silly it is to think, especially for a prophet, that they can actually get away from the presence of the Lord. Right? That's why the text repeats that phrase three times for us. Jonah, being a Jew who knew his Bible really well and being a prophet, he was a better theologian to think, you know what, maybe I can actually hide from God in a distant city. He would, he would have known Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So how can you flee from a God who knows and sees and is everywhere all the time? Here's the answer. You can't. Right? It's a vain effort. It's like playing hide and seek with a toddler. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's really fun. But when we play hide and seek at our house, when my youngest son plays, he does either two things. He either giggles uncontrollably, right when I'm done counting, or he just yells out repeatedly, here I am. Right? And, and even if he could keep quiet and find a good hiding place, guess what? I'm dad, so I know all the hiding places. And there's seven of us, and it's a small apartment, right? It's a vain effort to try and flee from God. And God doesn't just know Jonah's geographical location. He also knows the location of his heart. Psalm 44, 21 says he knows the secrets of the heart. In short, you cannot flee from God, whether physically or spiritually. So then, why? This is a question I've been thinking about the last couple weeks. If Jonah knew theologically, if he knew his Bible well enough to say, okay, I know I can't flee from God's presence, then why did he try? Why not just stay put? See, Jonah's flight was a desperate attempt to try and distract himself from his disobedience. He couldn't stay where the word of the Lord came to him. Reminders would be everywhere. He was a prophet. He likely had a group of people he ministered to. He couldn't stay with those people because he would be reminded of his disobedience. So what does he do? He distracts himself by fleeing. As one commentator notes, it's a common experience among people of faith to physically leave a place that reminds them of God in order to avoid the message they've heard in that place. That's exactly what Jonah is doing. And that's what we tend to do, isn't it? If not physically, relocate. We try to distract ourselves. We, we live in an ultra-distracted culture, so we try and busy ourselves so much that we just don't even have to face the deep questions of our heart, the spiritual relational crisis that we face. New York Times columnist David Brooks, who describes himself, just so you know where he is spiritually, as a, quote, wandering Jew and confused Christian, he gives an example, a very candid example of this in a recent interview. Listen to what he says. He says, I went through a rough patch in 2013. My marriage had ended. My kids had left home to go to college. I drifted away from the political movement that I've been a part of most of my life. And so I was lonely. I was disconnected from people and not really knowing it, but facing a spiritual emptiness or void in myself. And so what I did was what a lot of people do. I tried to work my way through it. 
just work all day as a way to try and escape relational and spiritual crisis. Now listen to what else he says later in the, inter- in the interview. He says, I found when you're in the valley, you learn a couple of things. You learn that freedom stinks. He says, you know, political freedom is good. Economic freedom is good. Social freedom is no good. If you're unattached, you're unremembered. And you aren't committed to anything. And I learned that lesson. I think Brooks is wiser than he knows here. Freedom from relationships with others and ultimately with God, which is what Jonah is seeking, leads to isolation, doesn't it? See, Jonah's attempt to flee from his uh, relational and spiritual crisis with God actually enslaves him to sin and rebellion. We have to ask ourselves, is that us this morning? In what ways are we trying to busy ourselves with work or with entertainment or with relationships or with whatever it is so we can distract ourselves from God and His Word? So practically speaking, how how do we recognize this in our own lives? I just want to give you three simple questions that, that sort of help you diagnose seeds of rebellion in your own heart. First question is this, do I desire to hear and take in God's Word? Or... Would I rather not be convicted by the word? If I read that or hear that, I'm going to be convicted by sin. I don't don't want that, so I keep away. Do I have a desire to pray, to commune with God? Or would I rather not speak to God because I know we're at odds? Do I have a desire to be among the people of God? Or would I rather isolate myself so no one gets in my business and asks personal questions? You notice that that's what Tarshish represented for Jonah. He could flee from the Word of God in his mind. He could flee from the presence of God. And he could get away from the people of God. That's what he was trying to do. But, even in his rebellion, he couldn't avoid God. And that's actually good news for Jonah and for us. And that leads us to number three. So we've seen God's command, man's rebellion. And then lastly, we see the pursuit of grace. Immediately after Jonah flees, we see God pursuing Jonah And not just Jonah, but these new characters introduced these sailors through a mighty storm. Verse 4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then we meet these sailors in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now these sailors were well trained. This was their job. They knew what storms were like. But apparently, this storm was so fierce that they were terrified. That they were going to lose their life. They were even willing to toss over cargo, which meant financial loss. And they immediately saw this as something divine because they start praying to their, their gods. The quickness and intensity of the storm was abnormal. It was a sign to them that there are other divine works at play here. And where is Jonah in all this? He's taking a nap in the bottom of the boat. By the way, this is why I will never go on a cruise. But that's a side note. You think, my goodness, verse 6. So the captain came to him and said the same thing we would ask him. What do you mean, O sleeper? Essentially, "Uh, dude, why are you sleeping? We're all going to die. And he says, arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I think Jonah's sleep here is just further evidence that he's he's settled in this disobedience. 
He's even refu- refusing the pursuit of God. He's made peace with his sin. Therefore, he's oblivious to it. But I actually think there's something deeper going on here. One commentator calls this the sleep of sorrow. I think this is a sign of real deep depression in Jonah's life. That's a symptom of depression, isn't it? I want to avoid everything around me, in Jonah's case, because everything is reminding me of God and my disobedience. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to sleep, right? Not all depression, don't mishear me, not all depression means you're in direct disobedience to God. But in Jonah's case, it seems very clear. And he's beginning to learn something. That while the sacrifice of obedience was great, the sacrifice of his disobedience is far greater, isn't it? If Jonah obeyed, he may have lost his life or his reputation. But now in his disobedience, he's lost the joy of life with God. He's sorrowful. But God loves this rebellious and depressed prophet too much to let him go. And so he comes to him in this storm. And as Martin Luther says, not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He's got nowhere to run or hide. And that's good news for him. So the captain rebukes him for sleeping, and he calls him to arise. That's the same language that's used of God's call to arise in verse 2. And notice this pagan captain knows that his gods are useless. He's, He's abandoned the idea of praying to their false gods. So he wakes Jonah up and he says, hey, perhaps you can pray to your God. Perhaps your God, whoever that may be, will give us thought that we may not perish. And Jonah still doesn't pray. In fact, he doesn't say anything to the captain. Verse 7 tells us that these sailors recognize not only is this divine, the storm, but it's it's a form of punishment, so they cast lots. Think rolling dice. Now, just as a side note, that's a bad way to decide God's will, Um, but it was common in ancient times, and God is sovereign, and he used it here. Proverbs 16 tells us he is sovereign even over the way the dice falls. And so the lot is cast, it falls on Jonah, and they say to him, verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? They're just trying to know who this guy is. And they ask him what his occupation is. And notice that he doesn't tell them that. He doesn't answer that question, because he's way too ashamed to call himself a prophet, because he knows he's fleeing from God. But he does give them some good theology, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's a good theological answer to a question about who God is, right? And this is both reason to praise God, but it's also a warning for us. It's a reason to praise God, because even in this storm... Even as this prophet is rebelling, what is God doing? He's not only pursuing Jonah, but he's bringing the truth about who he is to pagan sailors who may otherwise never hear the truth about Yahweh. It's it's an incredible sort of aside to this story that God is sovereign over bringing the message of his saving truth to others. And it's a reminder to us that no matter how foolish we are, God's plan cannot be thwarted. But it's also a warning to us because Jonah has the right theological answer. He he is almost evangelistic in the way he responds to this 
question, telling them about who the true God is, but his heart is in complete rebellion against God. Listen, the study of God, the knowledge of his word, theology, that's what that means, is important for us. I know I speak for Clint and Jeremy when I say we want you to know God. We want you to know his word. We want you to know the truth about him. But if that truth stays in your head and never makes it down into your heart, causing you to stir your affections for God and to love him, and never makes it out to your hands, your life, then that theology, that knowledge, that truth is completely and totally useless to you. In fact, it actually serves to condemn Jonah here. Jonah is the embodiment of the words of Jesus, quoting Isaiah in Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or here's how A.W. Tozer puts it. You can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty as one spiritually. That's a quote worth remembering. In all of our studies, and all our desire to know God, may we also aim not just for the head, but for the heart, right? And as we read on, what's so shocking about this is that while Jonah has the right words, who has the right response here? These pagan sailors who know very little, if anything, about God. Their general fear of the storm in verse 5 actually matures into a right fear and reverential awe of the one true God by the end of this chapter. They now know God has sent this storm on account of Jonah's disobedience. And so they wonder, okay, now what do we do? Verse 12, Jonah knows he's been found out by God, so he makes a request, throw me over, send me to my death. He knows that he's caused this, and the despair is so much, he simply wants to die. Verses 13 through 16 tells us the sailors again, it's almost applauding the sailors. They try to avoid throwing Jonah overboard. They row to no avail. They pray that God wouldn't hold them accountable for Jonah's life. And then they do what they have to do. They throw him overboard. And immediately, the text means you to think that almost as if once Jonah hits the water, the storm stops. Now, we don't know what happened to the sailors after this, but verse 16 is very clear. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We don't hear from them again, but the language here hints at a true conversion, a saving knowledge of God. God has pursued them with His grace. And then we read our favorite verse in Jonah, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah doesn't die. But God sends this fish to rescue him. That's God's grace. It's unmerited favor for Jonah. Now, we could spend tons of time talking about a fish. But we're not going to do that. Because that's not what the text does. Right? The way we walk through passages of Scripture is the main point of the text is the main point of the message. Right? But it should be said that there's really no reason for us to take this any other way than literal. Right, the way this book is written, Jonah's literary form, it's not a parable, it's not a metaphor, it's not allegory. Uh, the details of places and people and the historical reality of Jonah's prophetic ministry all point to this book being what's called didactic history. Historical events that are meant to teach us truth. 
On top of this, Jesus himself, in Matthew 12, 41, references Jonah in affirmation of the book of Jonah. And he tells us the truth of all the law and the prophets and the writings. Jesus believed in the historicity of these books. And just as a side note, I don't want to belittle that question if that's something you wrestle with, but I would point you to a very helpful resource we have for free called Why Trust the Bible. It goes through all those sorts of questions on why what we have in our hands when we're holding the Scripture is something that truly is, can be counted on as the Word of God. And Tim Keller helpfully reminds us here, he says, if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, a far greater miracle, I would agree, then there's nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. So Jonah came off the ship, and yes, a giant fish swallowed him, and he survived in the belly of that fish for three days. Now, what does all of this have to do with us? The command of God, the rebellion of man, and the pursuit of grace. What does it have to do with you and me? Friend, just as God pursued wicked Nineveh, Wayward Jonah and these pagan sailors, he pursues us in the same way, does he not? If you think of this outline, the command of God, the rebellion of man, and the pursuit of grace, this isn't just an outline for Jonah chapter 1. This is an outline for the message of the gospel itself. This is actually an outline for the story of the entire Bible. God, man, Christ, how do we respond? God is holy. He's worthy of our full allegiance and obedience to Him. He's commanded us to love God and love one another. Yet we are sinners, every single one of us. We've not only been indifferent to God's commands, we're not neutral. We've deliberately positioned ourselves as enemies towards Him. We fail to love God perfectly. We fail to love one another. We're just like Jonah. Therefore, we stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're like Jonah or you're like the pagan sailors, all of us stand in the boat, pun intended, right? Worthy of receiving the storm of God's wrath against us. Yet, God has pursued us with His grace in the person and work of Jesus. Christ came down to do what Jonah and what you and I could never do. As we'll later see, he is the greater Jonah. He fully obeyed the commands of God. He perfectly loved God. He perfectly loved others. He then gave his life on the cross as the spotless and acceptable sacrifice for for those of us who would believe. He plunged into the depth of the grave to stop the storm of God's wrath. That's what his death on the cross means. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. He ascended into the heavens. And what is he doing as he awaits his return? He's pursuing sinners. Sinners like you and me. So wherever you are this morning, to the wayward Christian, maybe that's you. Jonah 1 calls us to return to him in faith and receive the power of his grace. We'll be restored to that fount of every blessing. Maybe you're here and you're considering Christianity and you really don't know where you stand, but know that the, the very fact that you're hearing the message of the gospel is a sign that God has not stopped pursuing you. Right? Our sin is great, but His grace is greater. So whether you are a religious person who's abandoned God and need to return, or whether you're not a Christian, or whether you have little knowledge of God whatsoever, you're not beyond God's reach. 
We've broken God's command. We've rebelled against Him. But God in Christ pursues us with His grace. We can be restored to His blessing.